it's a sobering thing to uh, prepare a message and uh, fend off spiritual attack throughout the week and then uh, stand in front of you all on a Sunday to give that message that God has been working and moving in you, challenging you with yourself. And so this morning before I start on the notes before us and we read our passage of Scripture, I'm going to ask that you just take 30 seconds or a minute to pray for just a couple of things. Uh, Pray for the preacher this morning as I would seek to uh, share what the Lord has laid upon my heart and pray for yourself that the Lord would do a reviving work in your heart, a revealing work, whatever might be necessary for you in your journey at this moment in time. So let me encourage you to just, just take just a few moments to do that, at the end of which I'll pray and we'll commence on our study. Let's take just a few moments. Lord, the recent events in my own personal life have revealed to me in greater measure the seriousness of the task that is before me and before us as a congregation, the high priority upon hearing, understanding and applying your word into our own hearts. Lord, to do precisely what was said of in that song, to lay our all upon the altar. Uh, These sometimes become Christian cliches. They become things we talk about and often things we do not do. So Lord, this morning I'm asking that you would move through this place in a great way move through our hearts clean out the secret closets reveal to us areas that need to be brought before your throne of grace and forgiveness sought perhaps issues that we might have with another issues at home Lord whatever it is that is prohibiting us from what is called spiritual worship so Lord in these next few moments I pray you do a mighty work in all of our hearts thank you that we can come together at this hour free us from distractions I pray Uh, Lord let not the evil one uh, have any say in what happens within this service in our own hearts Uh, keep us attentive upon yourself and the spirit's work within us we pray and it's in Jesus name we pray Amen. 
If you'd take your Bibles this morning, please, and turn with me to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. And we'll read the first eight verses of this chapter. Romans 12, beginning in verse 1. Ordinarily, I'd say to you we need to read the context, but the context in this case is Romans 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11. And we won't take the time to read all 11 chapters preceding this. But chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, To present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith. If service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Last week, if you were able to be with us or have heard the message that was put online, You'll know that our theme verse for 2017, which is behind me, is serve the Lord with gladness. In that message, we asked a number of questions. Number one, last week, we asked, what is service? Number two, what should I serve or who should I serve rather? Why should I serve? Number three, who should I serve? Number four, what should be my manner in service? And number five, what should I do if my service for Christ is merely a duty? Knowing and understanding what God wants you to do within the body is one of the most fulfilling realities this side of heaven. Our studies into the spiritual gifts will help you identify, develop and engage in those areas of service to which the Lord has appointed you within this local body. However, a very important truth precedes the discovery and deployment of our spiritual gifts in the church. And this is what we're going to look at this week and next week. It was no mistake that the first list of spiritual gifts found here in Romans 12 verses 3 to 8 is immediately preceded by the call to surrender and consecration. In other words, service And the exercising of our God-given gifts must always flow from a life of surrender and consecration. God's pattern, mark it down, God's pattern is salvation, surrender, service. 
Too many have salvation and service, but are missing the key element of surrender. Sadly, some are serving with no salvation. This is wrong too. If we are to operate the way that God intended us to operate in his body, we must be saved, surrendered, and then serving. In essence, the question we're asking is this today. What am I to be before I proceed to do? What am I to be before I proceed to do? And in this message, I'm going to personalize each point as we take time to examine these matters in our own lives. This morning, I'm preaching a message entitled Prerequisites to Service, Part 1. Prerequisites to Service, Part 1. So let's look at it in Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the church at Rome. And the first thing I want you to note, the first personalized phrase is this for us. I must be a member of God's family. I must be, be being our key word today, I must be a member of God's family. Paul writes, I appeal to you therefore, brothers. By brothers, he does not mean men only in the church. He means brothers. This is the word Adelphoi. It deals with the whole congregation of the family of God there at Rome. The church, the local church. We need to note this this morning. Only the Christian has the capacity and the privilege to worship and serve the Lord. This blessed reality was made possible because of Christ's sacrifice for our sins and our absolute dependence upon him for salvation. It was the Apostle John who in John chapter 1 and verse 12 said, But to all who did receive him, who believed on his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. You see from our text that the true child of God is the one who has experienced the mercies of God. I beseech you or appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Someone who has experienced the mercy of God, not in an intellectual fashion in the universities of the land, but in a personal heart fashion. I have felt and know and experienced The mercies of God. I want to give a word of caution here this morning. There are many, I believe, who attend church services all over this country and beyond. They engage even in the activity of outward worship. They serve in some ministries of a local assembly and yet they are in their sins. I am pleading with God this year. And I have been day after day that at the conclusion of this year, there would not be one amongst us who meets with us every week, day in, day out, ministries and service that is outside of Jesus Christ. 
I cannot think of anything worse than shepherding a local assembly whereby there are those within it who believe they are saved but are not. What could be worse than coming on a Sunday in attendance in a ritualistic fashion thinking that you are God's and yet he doesn't know you? I cannot think of anything that would be sadder. And perhaps the most disturbing passage in the entire Bible is found in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 21 to 23, where the Bible says, and Jesus says, not everyone, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven On that day, on judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. We even cast out demons in your name. We did mighty works in your name. And then Jesus says, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. We hear a lot today In church circles, I know Jesus. The important thing is not whether you know Jesus. It's whether Jesus knows you. You may think you know Jesus, but unless your heart has been changed, unless the internal man has been regenerated, brought to life by his spirit, you may know of Jesus, but he does not know you. Billy Sunday, the evangelist many years ago, said, Going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to a garage makes you an automobile. That's true. It's true. Another person is known to have said, Having your name on the church roll is no more assurance of salvation than if it were written on a sausage roll. That's true. Just because you remember... Just because you're an attendee, just because you make it a priority to come and, and, and uh, be a part of something like this, does not by any means guarantee your entrance into the kingdom of God. I believe strongly that there are those in attendance, perhaps even today, whose great need is not to discover their spiritual gifts, but to discover Jesus Christ and trust in him for salvation. So my friend... Are you a child of God? Do you know that your sins have been forgiven? Are you assured of a home in heaven after this life? Do you experience the blessing of God's presence within to comfort, to lead and to guide you? Can you say with full assurance that you have received the gift of eternal life? Let me insert a personal illustration that's not here in my notes, but as I'm led of the Lord this morning, I want to be sensitive to that. During my time of uh, great despair in the course of the last three months, which, by the way, I don't want to be the focus of every message, but it's very raw still. But during this particular time, uh, really, for the first time in my history, I doubted my salvation. Never been a reality before. Doubted my salvation. And coming through that and seeing God do a great work and the repentance that took place and the change of life that uh, has, been, uh, has ensued, here is how I know. Here is how I know that I possess eternal life. God brought me through it again and again and again. 
And the fact that I stand behind this pulpit this morning is testimonial to the fact that God can change even the most rebellious saint. He can change and convict us. That is the proof of your Christian life. Have you fallen and has God picked you up? Have you struggled and God has pushed you on? Or have you quit and never returned to the reality of Jesus Christ? Then perhaps you need to take into account whether or not you're truly his. But if you've fallen and if you continue to fall and you confess and God dusts you off and picks you up and helps you to grow some more, then you are truly his. There is the assurance of salvation because the spirit of God is at work. That was just free, not even part of the notes. The second thing I want us to see this morning is not only that I must be a member of God's family, but secondly... If I'm going to serve the Lord, I must be motivated by the mercies of God. I must be motivated by the mercies of God. Romans 12 and verse 1, Paul makes his appeal, his begging, and he says to them, Brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies. By the mercies of God, Be holy. By the mercies of God, do not be conformed to the world. By the mercies of God, be transformed. By the mercies of God, know the will of God. By the mercies of God, be humble. In verse 3, by the mercies of God, serve in the local church for his glory. In other words, Paul could say it like this. I am begging you, children of God, on account of his mercies, which you have experienced. That's how Paul could say it. So here's what I'm saying this morning based on this text. Service for Christ must be preceded by an understanding of the gospel and a heart filled with thanksgiving and praise to the Lord for his inexpressible gift. If you're you're there in Romans 12, just look up in Romans 11 at the end, verse 33. Look at his heart. Paul says, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Verse 36, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Listen to the heart of this man who has been changed by the mercies of God. The motivation. And in other places throughout the scripture we read of Paul saying, I do this for the sake of Christ. I'm doing this because I know what it is that he's done for me. The mercies of God. Understanding the mercy of God means coming to terms with what we deserved in our wretched estate of sin. When we realize that God withheld his fierce judgment from us and poured out that wrath in its fullness upon his dear son, we will be filled with wonder. And awe and thanksgiving. The most joyful Christians are the Christians who understand the depravity of their sin and the mercy of God. They're the most joyful. They are the most maturing and growing Christians. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ 
that motivates us to live a life worthy of his calling. Samuel said, Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. Church, consider what great things God has done for you. Not for the church as a whole. He's done incredible things for the the universal and the local church. But for you individually. Consider it. Think about it. Meditate upon it. You see, the cure for apathy, the cure for pride and all other spiritual maladies is a renewed understanding of the gospel. When we understand who we were outside of Christ... Who Christ has become for us and what Christ is presently doing in us. We must respond in humility and obedience. If you say here this morning, you don't understand. I cannot surrender this or that X, Y, Z. My response will be the same as it is in my own life. You don't understand the gospel. Because there is nothing from him which I will withhold when I understand the mercy of God. Which brings us to our third point this morning. How must I be? What must be my life before I ever engage in service? It's this personal fact. I must be living a life of active, ongoing surrender. was all going okay until now. Say, I believe in the mercy of God. I love the gospel. I am a child of God, perhaps. Well, here is, as they say, where the rubber hits the road. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, church, by the mercy, by the gospel of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, let's put this into its cultural context for just a moment here. The Jews are not unfamiliar with sacrifice. We are. You would be highly concerned if you saw a goat or a lamb at the front here this morning and me dressed in a butcher's garment ready to do some sacrifice. We would be completely out of context here. But the Jews understand what Paul's saying here. They knew the Old Testament. They had followed the Levitical system for years and had gone year after year, sometimes day after day to the temple. However, what Paul says here is revolutionary to the Hebrew mind at this point. He says here, present your bodies as a underline it, living sacrifice. What do you mean, Paul? What do you mean a living sacrifice? We don't have a living sacrifice in our Levitical system, we kill the sacrifice and then we burn it and uh, disperse of it accordingly. Takes on a whole new meaning here. A dead sacrifice, note this, is void of a will. A dead sacrifice is void of a will. It's without choice. A living sacrifice, however, is alive. It's active and capable of deciding of its own volition whether or not to lay upon the altar in absolute surrender or not. This changes everything. It's a whole lot easier to put a dead animal on the altar. You try getting an animal to stay on the altar when it's alive. This is exactly what Paul is saying to us. God didn't slay us on that altar, God gave us new life to lay 
actively and willingly upon that altar. There's a few things we need to understand this morning. There is no such thing as partial surrender. No such thing. There's no such thing as just laying my hands upon the altar, but hanging back the rest of my body. God is not interested in our hands only or portions of our body. He demands the full package. Anything less than the full package is not a living sacrifice on the altar. And church, to deny God the totality of our bodies as a living sacrifice is to depreciate his gospel. And the mercy that we've received. To withhold any aspect of our being is to enthrone ourselves as the Lord of our own life. And to engage in false worship. And if that wasn't hard enough, it gets worse in this passage of scripture. He takes it a little bit higher. Because to present your bodies as a living sacrifice is not a one-time thing. In the original language here, this phrase is what we call a present continuous. This means that this is an ongoing activity day after day, week after week for the entirety of our physical life here on earth. I am today to lay myself on the altar. Later today, I'm to lay myself on the altar. Tomorrow, I'm to lay myself on the altar. This flies in the face of Sunday Christianity, doesn't it? Sunday Christianity or even the camp mentality. I'll get my life right now and then when I get home, I'm just going to go back to what I did. That's the problem with these rededication services. We don't need rededication services. We need constant ongoing sacrifice on the altar day after day. And the shorter your account, the greater your strength in resolve to move forward as a living Sacrifice. You know, it's much easier to sing about surrender than to live it out. All to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely give. I will ever love and trust him. In his daily presence live. I surrender some. I surrender all. I surrender all. All to thee, my blessed Saviour. I surrender all. Another songwriter, Merrill Dunlop, wrote, Only one life to offer. Take it, dear Lord, I pray. Nothing from thee withholding thy will I now obey. Thou who hast freely given thine all in all for me, claim this life for thine own to be used, my Saviour, every moment. For thee. What is it in your life that you will not surrender? What is of greater value to you than the Lord? What is the idol before whom or before which you bow? The Apostle John wrote some incredible words at the end of his first epistle. In chapter 5 and verse 21, he says, Little children, keep yourselves from idols idolatry is a great problem in the church today idolatry is a great problem in my life it's a great problem in your life 
And the instruction is to keep yourselves from idols. Lay yourself entirely on the altar of sacrifice. Point number four. I must be living a life of active, ongoing surrender. It's point number three. And point number four is this. I must be set apart to God. Look at what Paul says once again in this first verse. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy, the gospel of God, to present your bodies. That is a living sacrifice. The next word, holy and acceptable to God. It's not enough to surrender all. Now, Paul says, walk in holiness. It's not enough to simply lay on the altar and say, okay, Lord, I'm leaving it all behind. I'm prepared to lay myself out. But now, Paul says, holiness must befit that living sacrifice. It must adorn that life of a Christian. Why? Because simply this, God is holy. God is holy. Now, in a few moments, I'm going to show you what some of us think holiness is. But we need to understand that God is categorically, objectively, and completely holy in every form and facet of his character. There's not a part of him that is not entirely set apart and consecrated. There's not a part of him that is not entirely righteous. And we are called to approach this holy God on his terms and not on our own. Now, the reality of the truth, I believe, is that the subject of holiness in the life of the believer is seldom spoken of in our day and age. And largely because it has a resonating sound of legalism often. Often we don't want to tell people how they need to live or, or we'll get uh, branded as someone who is legalistic and ritualistic and, and you have to do this, 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 this. That's not holiness. That's not what we're saying holiness is. And please don't misunderstand that this morning. This is not a list of do's and don'ts and you'll see that in a moment. It's very, very rarely spoken of. And even worse, rarely do we find a Christian who lives in the realm of holiness. To be set apart is to be anti-cultural. And I don't mean that means we're not allowed to drive cars because that's the culture of the day. I mean the spirit of the age. It's anti-spirit of the age. It's not the way the world is going morally and spiritually. That's what I'm speaking of here. What is holiness? It's to abhor what is evil. And to hold fast what is good, which interestingly enough is in the next few verses in this text. Verse 9. To abhor what is evil, to hate it, and to cling with all my might to that which is good and right. It is to keep yourself unspotted from the world, James 1.27 says. And it's to hate even the clothing stained by the flesh, Jude verse 23 says. It is to repudiate evil in all its forms and to run towards all that is pure and righteous. Paul says to Timothy, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love and peace. 2 Timothy 2.22 
If we had the time, I'd take you to Isaiah chapter 6, one of my greatest favorite passages in the Bible. But what we find there is that before ever Isaiah could hear the call of God and answer the call of God for service, he first had to see the glory of God, his sinfulness, and be made holy and consecrated to him before God said, whom shall I send? And Isaiah said, I'm your man, send me. There's a great pattern there in Isaiah 6. God says, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing and then I will welcome you, 2 Corinthians 6, 17. I love this verse. Paul, again, in encouraging Timothy in 2 Timothy 1, verse 9, he says, God saved us and called us to a holy calling. Not because of our works, don't think it's about us, it's not, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. God predestined you to be holy, Ephesians 1 says. You were called to be holy. To not be holy is to have an identity crisis, because your identity is in Christ who is making you holy. To Be insubordinate to that call, to neglect that call, to dismiss that call is to walk in the opposite direction of your calling. Holiness is not a take it or leave it matter. It's our purpose. God saved you and me to be holy. Ephesians 1 verse 4, that doxology of praise. Paul says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. We've got some books on the table out there by Oswald Chambers. This is what he says. Holiness, not happiness, is the chief end of man. Interestingly, in today's society, happiness is the chief end of man. That's not the chief end of the Christian life. You are not necessarily going to be bounding around and skipping around in happiness all your days, but you ought to be holy. Holiness, not happiness, is the chief end of man. This is what I alluded to before. This next illustration. Sometimes we have a very peculiar idea of what holiness is. I'm just as guilty as the next person. And some of this is humorous, but it's also very true. Let me read you what one author's comments are about holiness before he understood what it was. Holiness, he writes, sounds scary. It need not be. But to the average American, Australian, it is. Our tendency is to say that holiness is something for the cloistered halls of a monastery. It needs organ music, long prayers and religious sounding chants. It hardly seems appropriate for those who live in the real world of the 20th, 21st century. Author John White listed the following images that came to his mind when he thought of holiness. You take inventory of your own life. This is what he thought represented holiness. Thinness. I read that and thought, oh dear. Hollowed, hollow-eyed gauntness. Beards, sandals, long robes, stone cells, no sex, no jokes, hair shirts. How many of you know what a hair shirt is? 
Okay, I had to look it up. I had no idea what it is. Don't look it up. It's a very strange piece of clothing. Hair shirts, frequent cold baths, fasting, hours of prayer, wild rocky deserts, getting up at 4am, clean fingernails, stained glass and self-humiliation. Is that the mental picture you have when you think of holiness? If we're honest, we probably have some of those things in our mind as to what looks like holiness. It's almost as though, the author writes, holiness is the private preserve of an austere group of monks, missionaries, mystics and martyrs. But he concludes by saying, nothing could be further from the truth. Chuck Colson, some of you would have heard of him, writes this, Holiness is the everyday business of every Christian. It evidences itself in the decisions we make and the things we do hour by hour, day by day. Holiness is not so much about what we do or do not do as much as what we think and the state of our inner man. You see, like all things that are spiritual, if the inner man is changed, the outer man will reflect that change. The danger, church, is that from a message such as this, we all suddenly go home and say, I've been convicted about a certain outward thing, and we change the outward thing. Year after year, and this is probably a humorous story, but year after year, hearing messages on holiness at camps, I would go home and I would go and burn my whole CD collection. And then just a couple of weeks later, I'd spend all my hard-earned money and buy them all back again. Because all I had done was be told, you must get rid of this music and that situation, and this and this and this, and get rid of that girlfriend or get rid of that boy, or whatever the outward circumstance was. But the problem was not the outward primarily. The problem is the inward. Because if God gets a hold of this heart, if the laying of our bodies is upon the altar, there's nothing that I will not let go of. And we must understand that. If God works on our heart this morning and we see afresh his glory and the mercies of God and we say finally and fervently, I lay myself on the altar, O God, let him then take care of what needs to go. He's able to do that in our hearts. But God forbid that we start making cookie-cutter Christians who all look the same, who all do exactly the same things. That's not what Christianity is. That's not what holiness is. It's not beards. It's not no jokes. It's not sandals and rocky deserts. It is a life spent pursuing God and him being my priority. You say, does this have anything to do with spiritual gifts? It most certainly does because Romans 12 4 through 8 is all about spiritual gifts. But I dare not. I dare not enter onto that subject until we've got the first bit right. Until I've presented that to you. Exercising your spiritual gifts without a holy lifestyle is like cleaning the windows with an oily rag. The result will be smears, blotches and stains. God forbid that we would bring disrepute to the body of Christ because of our impure lifestyle. But more importantly, that we would bring disrepute to our God because of our impure 
heart. So as we close this morning, there's one remaining matter for just a moment that needs our attention. In speaking of surrender and consecration as the prerequisites to serving our Lord, it must be understood I am not advocating sinless perfectionism or entire sanctification, if you prefer the theological term, before we can ever serve. I am not saying, I am not saying that our life must be in total, uh, everything in its right place all the time before we could ever engage in serving in the local church. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying you have to be sinlessly perfect in order to use your gifts, not at all, else I better stand down from this platform because this morning alone I've sinned. It's not what we're saying. Only Christ is without sin. And all of us wrestle with the flesh on a daily basis. The encouragement here this morning is to walk in the manner of holiness. And when we fall, and you will, maybe today, maybe before the service is over, when you fall, run rapidly to the Lord for cleansing and forgiveness. You see, serving the Lord with gladness And exercising our gifts in the church must flow from a genuine relationship with God, a life motivated by the gospel, the presentation of our bodies in absolute surrender, and a holiness which permeates every part of our character. Next week, we will consider the last four prerequisites to service before we look at our spiritual gifts. Lord, thank you for your word for this dynamic portion of scripture that can leave none of us without an understanding of what your intention is for us to do and lord i'm praying as i have been and will continue to that each of us in preparation for discovering and deploying our spiritual gifts in this local assembly would ensure that there is a heart of surrender, of consecration, of holiness, that we would not blemish the body, that we would not bring about disrepute to your reputation, that your blessing would be poured out upon us, not for the sake of numbers or money, but for your glory, that the world about us might look and behold a church that is worthy of your coming a blameless church a bride that is unspotted and unblemished and lord we know that the reality of that fullness will never be had until you come but oh lord may we press on to that and may our desire be that in all things your holiness would be seen that we would be humble and lowly before you constantly aware of our own Sin that is so permeating in our life. Lord, there may well be those today who have specific matters that need attention. I pray, Lord, that they would have the boldness to deal with them privately or in a counseling session or in a prayer session, whatever it might be. That, Lord, you would weed out from our lives those matters that need to be removed. We thank you again for the Apostle Paul, for the inspiration of your word, 
and these prerequisites for service in your church. Thank you. Have your own way, we pray in Jesus' name.